let's turn to our scripture, if you would, today, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Um, if you're watching from home, if you're in the building, find it in physical form. I encourage you to find it that way or electronic form. Doesn't matter how you find it, but I encourage you to find it. Matthew 6, 16 through 18, where Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and he now brings up fasting. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus here says a key word at the beginning. He says, when you fast, not if you fast. And when it comes to fasting, some people can't fast. Some people shouldn't fast. But most people can fast and never try. I'll say that again. When it comes to fasting, some people can't fast, some people shouldn't fast, and some people can fast, most people can fast, but never try. And so when we talked about why to fast last week, what we said was, ultimately, fasting is where we give up something good for something better. That better is a relationship with the Father, an increased relationship with God the Father. We also said that fasting is a response to God's work, Fasting is also a preparation for God's work, so it's a response and it's a preparation. But ultimately, what you're doing in either of those cases is that fasting opens up a pathway to hear God clearly. The idea is that in fasting, we're humbling our body to focus solely and completely on our relationship with God the Father. But probably more important, and what's been brought up to me is a good question, why talk about fasting, though? We can understand the whys, but why bring it up in a sermon series at all? Well, two answers I'll give today. One is, I at least am committed as a pastor to preach the whole counsel of Scripture as much as is in my ability to do so. I don't want to ignore stuff that's in there. This is in the midst of probably one of the most important sections of, this, of Scripture that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, when, not if. There's something there we ought to pay attention to, I think. Um, but the second thing is, I've been pastoring in churches. This is the third church I've pastored in. I've been pastoring for 14 years in churches. I've been about 17 years of my life in pastoral ministry in one way or another. And I've heard over and over again in various ways, I don't know how to pray. I've been following Jesus Christ for a long time. I don't know how to pray. Why should I pray? I don't get prayer. Because why am I telling God all this stuff that he already knows? I've heard, you know, how do I pray? Okay, I know I want to pray, but how, how do I even go about it? Or, I've been following Jesus for a long time, and I've never actually heard God speak to me. Or, and this one doesn't get spoken as much, but I've heard it in between the lines many times. I've been following Jesus for a long time, but I've never really experienced God's presence. Prayer and fasting go together quite closely. They have to. And let me just give you a little uh, anecdote that'll help you understand why I bring that up. Well, I went on a year ago fall, I went on sabbatical for six weeks. 
Um, in, and most of that was wonderful. I, I would do things differently the next time, sure, but it's not because I regret it, just because I'd want a different experience um, next time I try such a thing. But in my reflections on the sabbatical, the one thing I said I would change for sure next time is that I would begin with fasting. Why? Because every time I've ever done a retreat with fasting, it's an accelerant to prayer. It's something that when you do it, it opens up that channel. It's not magical, but it seems to open up that channel to God's voice faster than anything else I can think of that we can do. Because we're humbling our mind and our body all at the same time. When people say, I don't know how to pray, why pray, how do I pray, all those things about prayer. Prayer is done best by doing, and if you want to supercharge it, add fasting to it, even for a meal, and try it. It's a remarkable accelerant to your prayer life, especially if your prayer life is puzzling. But let's look at what Jesus says here, now that we've talked about why. Why, why fast? Why talk about this? What Jesus says specifically about fasting, if we go back to verse 16, he says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Jesus goes for it right away there. The hypocrites. Classically, a hypocrite is an actor, right? Somebody who wears a mask to be somebody else, essentially. But the way Jesus is using it and the way we use it today, pretty much the same thing. Someone who's displaying false virtue, right? They're saying one thing, but they actually are living out and acting another. They have something completely different in their heart. Um, I remember uh, uh, experiencing this. I didn't experience this as much firsthand, but uh, a neighboring uh, Christian college when I was in college had this uh, uh, in spades where the culture was, you want to go to church on Sunday at a Christian college, and there were a number of people who slept right on through, but still dressed up for lunch as if they went to church. There's some hypocrisy, right? You might work in your work environment where you're working on a team sometime and somebody says, man, I'm a team player. I'm with the team. The team gets all the credit, but the moment they get a chance to take the credit, what do they do? Take the credit. There's some hypocrisy there. Jesus says, don't look somber like the hypocrites do. For those that are, some other translations like the Revised Standard and a few others have, don't look dismal, great word for right there. Don't look somber, don't look dismal. King James has, uh, they, are, they look of sad countenance, right? It's clear that they're displaying something to you. There's obviously something wrong. Like when you go up to somebody who looks sad and you say, is something wrong? And they're clearly showing it and they say, no, nothing's wrong. We know, we can see right through that mask, right? Don't look like that, Jesus says, when you fast. Don't look somber. Don't disfigure your face. And what is the, what's the language they're actually pointing to? What they're doing is activity that someone would do when they're in mourning, actually. Right? In the ancient world, in Jesus' day, uh, in the Old Testament, before Jesus' day, if somebody was in mourning, there were all kinds of different customs they could have. There's, of course, loud wailing and things like that. They'd even pay people to wail. Uh, that was a, a profession people could have or a side, a side gig, basically. Uh, but people would wear sackcloth sometimes, or they'd wear torn clothes or even fewer clothes, walk around barefoot, and, and basically ignore their hygiene for the most part. Hair unkempt. Instead of using oil to kind of cleanse themselves, they'd let themselves be dirty like pig pen, basically, from Charlie Brown. And you can see that. You can see. They look like they're mourning. They want you to notice what's going on. They have a prideful 
posture instead of a humble posture. That is to say, when it comes to the glory, the glory is being taken by themselves, not being given to God. That's the difference between pride and humility, right? It's who gets the glory, me or God. An old term for pride is vainglory, actually, and I ran into this quote from St. Augustine from the late 300s, where he says, vainglory, pride, can find a place not only in the splendor and pomp of worldly wealth, but even in the sordid garment of sackcloth, mourning. It is then all the more dangerous because it is a deception under the pretense of service to God. So they're trying to make you think doubly good of themselves because they're hypocrites for God. Jesus spoke a lot about hypocrites. He didn't like it. 13 references at least in Matthew you can find quickly. Um, A little less in Mark and Luke. Uh, Specifically, if you want to see one of the ones where he just kind of lays it on with the hypocrites, uh, Matthew 23, 13 and following, he just goes, woe to you hypocrites, and he just makes a long list. You can look at all the red letters later. But with belief, what needs to happen is what's on the outside needs to match the inside, like the apple, and what's on the inside needs to come out. They need to be Uh, There needs to be integrity between those two things. Otherwise, we can be hypocrites, right? And hypocrisy is a particularly maddening thing for any of us that have experienced it. Of course, we've all participated probably at some point, but we've all experienced it. It's annoying, really annoying when it happens. We know that it certainly happens. It's easy to pick on politicians, right? seems like there's a lot of hypocrisy that can easily go on there. We won't go on about that. Uh, Hollywood. Seems like we can easily pick on Hollywood. I remember a number of years ago, the campaign, to, the Don't Buy Girls campaign that went on with some famous celebrities making these public service announcements, yet they're the same people who are producing uh, movies and things that really are just the very byproduct of the sexual revolution of sex without uh, penalty or consequences that leads to why a person would even have that mindset. There's a little hypocrisy there. Even in the church, Right? Well, let me go back a, a smidge. People who uh, espouse tolerance but aren't tolerant, hypocrisy there, and the church, we can be hypocrites as well. We can be hypocrites sometimes in how we act towards one another, uh, just like those kids dressing up for church when they didn't go, and even the way we've handled sexual sin, right? There's been a lot of hypocrisy there. We need to kind of clean up how we do it maybe in more consistent fashion, for instance. Jesus doesn't like hypocrisy. But he goes on, and it's a nice little, uh, if you kind of just chart it out, you can see, don't do this, do this, the way Jesus says it. There's there's kind of a beautiful poetry to this. But if we go on to verse 17 and following, Jesus says, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So don't act like you're in mourning. Don't show it to everybody. When you fast, put on oil, wash your head and your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. How should people fast if they're engaging in it? Normally. That's how. We should fast normally. Jesus is getting at the why of fasting here. He says, really, would you rather have human reward or heavenly relationship when it comes to your your disciplines, your fasting? 
What are you looking for? I'm, I'm really struck when I looked at, at when he talks about hypocrites, and he doesn't say who the hypocrites are in this spot, right? He just says hypocrites. But when he says the hypocrites, he says they already have their reward. Did you notice how much of the reward they had? How much is it paid? In full. There's nothing more they can expect. No accolades from God, no nothing at any point after this. They got everything they deserve from going without food and enduring in their body the annoyance and pain and suffering sometimes of fasting if it takes that much. And they got it all. They got the human accolades and that's it. What did it add up to for them? But really, what's the reward we should want from humbling our mind and our body before the living God? We should want relationship with the Father. That's what we want, not human reward. That's what Jesus is telling us. Now, for those of you that are really familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you may look at this and you may say, okay, I've said when, when you fast, but then you may also know a couple passages where Jesus uh, is questioned uh, about his disciples. Why don't your disciples fast? So we might need to cover that. And we can cover that. If we go just a page beyond where you're at in your Bible or scroll to the next, click the next button on your thing, in chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, Jesus addresses the issue right here. It says, then John, so that's John the Baptist, then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come. And the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. A time and a season, it turns out. You can see the same kind of question asked from different people in Luke 5. You can also see in Acts 13, Acts 14. And when Paul gets uh, converted, he fasts for three days. You can see the, the, uh, the apostles do fast in Acts 13 and 14. So they do, when they fast, they take him, Jesus at his word as well. They eventually do it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in uh, The Cost of Discipleship, commenting on this passage, uh, says about fasting and about the disciples' fasting, he says, Jesus takes for granted that his disciples will observe the pious custom of fasting. Strict exercise of self-control is an essential feature of the Christian's life. Such customs have only one purpose, to make the disciples more ready and cheerful to accomplish those things which God would have done. Fasting helps to discipline the self-indulgent and slothful will, which is so reluctant to serve the Lord, and it helps to humiliate and chasten the flesh. By practicing self-control, we show the world how different the Christian life is from its own. And if you at all have a copy of The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, check it out from the library. His chapter on fasting is like three pages remarkable. Remarkable reflections on this specific passage we're looking at. I told you last week I'd talk a little bit about the mechanics of fasting. How would one do it? Should one choose to do it? It's not necessarily my challenge today, but how would one do it if they chose to fast? Well, two things. Start small and stay focused. If you're going to try it, start small. Remember what I said, not all can fast, not all should fast, if you have medical conditions, shouldn't try it. Um, if, you know, we've dealt with malnutrition in our own home, shouldn't try it in that case. Um, if, you know, age is a factor, pregnancy, all sorts of things, and even kids, don't worry about kids fasting. Don't try it if you're not supposed to. And if you even have a question, talk to a doctor, not to me. 
But for most people, we can. We're capable, the majority of the population. And there's something about uh, if you want to start small, a single meal or what I'd call a soft fast is an easy way to kind of just dip your toe in the water. And that's a perfect way to do it. So skipping a meal intentionally or, or even just skipping a meal with a light snack on either side the first time, just inch yourself into it if, that's, if it's going to take that to get there. Perfectly fine. There's something about the intention of it, though, that matters. So, right, the Snicker commercials for, uh, that have been going on for a number of years now, you see them a little less, where the person is a famous actor who's angry or something completely different, and then they eat a Snickers and they turn into themselves, right? They're hangry or whatever it is. You know, that's, we can get that way when we, when we have not eaten. We've all been in those situations where maybe we skipped lunch, we were working late, and then you, you just you had a late dinner or whatever it is, and you kind of get agitated or tired or sleepy or whatever can happen when we're lacking food. But when you do it with intentionality, yes, you can still experience some of those things, but you're much more focused. You're much more focused on the task at hand. And so a single meal skipped, and for those of you that skip breakfast, try lunch in addition if you already have that habit because you already do fast, it turns out. Um, you know, when I've done some shorter fasts, sometimes uh, you can drink juice, and that's fine if you've never done it before, or even coffee. I'm okay with I think that works. Um, what you're really fighting is mind over matter. Your body continues to tell you, your brain continues to tell you you need something that you don't. Right? Almost none of us are going to waste away if we miss a couple meals. We aren't. Our bodies can handle it. Don't skip water. Keep drinking that but almost none of us are going to waste away if we skip a few meals. Start small. Jesus did 40 days out in the wilderness fasting. Chances are, because the culture he lived in, he had practiced a little bit before that, right? It just takes work. The other thing is stay focused. And so here, even if you're saying to yourself, okay, I have no interest in fasting whatsoever, okay. Um, You know, you can fast from food, you can abstain from other things, Certain foods, like people often do in Lent, they give up chocolate or something like that, or the mistaken notion to give up coffee during Lent, right? Um, and give up certain habits. Certainly, if a habit is sinful, give it up anyways. Um, but other habits that might pull you from God uh, or pull you even from your family and thus from God, um, those can be given up as well as a fast. So there's multiple ways you can go about this. But what I've found is, is particularly helpful is to add a second discipline to fasting, and mine typically is memorizing scripture as a part of that. So I I might miss a meal, skip lunch, but I might add scripture to that. So for instance, I did a retreat a couple years ago where I fasted about four days, and I added to that Zephaniah 1-7, which says, uh, and I have it memorized, but I'm standing before you all, and apparently I don't in front of people. So be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Now remember, fasting for a number of days, and it was a coffee fast, I still drink coffee and water. As I was fasting for a number of days, memorizing and working through that in my head, you can do this, by the way, at work, you can do this anywhere. But I happen to be on a retreat doing this. And those first words, it was much more pronounced how easy it was to take in that scripture and then aim it upward and connect with God in relationship in that, because that be silent before the sovereign Lord, my mind just stopped there, and I said, okay, I'm going to take God at his word. I'm not going to go on yet. Be silent before the sovereign Lord. I'm going to do that then. 
I'm fasting. I'm hoping for, to be in his presence continuously. And as I was silent before the sovereign Lord, and as I fasted and prayed during that time and worked through this of what it means that the day of the Lord is near and those kinds of things, God revealed a number of things about myself. I won't tell you all right now, but I'll just say it. God made me recognize how much more fearful I am than I realize and how much needs to be worked on within me to do his work and his will much better without that fear to rely on him. All because I withheld food for a little bit of time and worked through some scripture and aimed upward, humbling my body and my mind. I even fasted this week just for a meal. And you know what? By giving that intentional time, God spoke as I worked on this sermon. I don't say that so that I get my reward in full. I say that as an example that while it's not magical, it's an accelerant to our life of prayer with God the Father. This week, take a small step towards silence before God. If you want to fast, great. If you say, that's not for me, okay. I'm not worried about it. But I am worried about that you take silence before the Lord this week. And listen, and listen carefully to the Lord. In some way, this week, the challenge I have for you is to humble your mind and or your body to be unstirred, still, and present with the Lord, that you would seek to hear his voice clearly. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful that you respond to us, whether we are full or whether we're empty as far as food is concerned. Let us not be silly in our pursuit of you, but focused and intentional. Let us recognize that, indeed, you sacrificed so much for us so we can sacrifice something in return, that we would have a strong, remarkable relationship with our Father in heaven. God, may that be the desire of our heart today, to seek you and find you. And when we seek you and find you, that we would grow with you, that we would be true children of our heavenly Father, in word and deed and thought and action and in attitude as we go forth into your world, God, because your kingdom is coming and we don't want to miss out on that. Your kingdom is coming and we stand in the the vestibule of heaven right now preparing our hearts, our minds, and our bodies to be received by you in the new heaven and the new earth when we get to stand in glory for eternity, Lord. If we've said yes to your son, Jesus Christ, that's our hope. Lord, we want to live that hope even beginning today as much as we can. May we be in close proximity to you with hearts synced to your heart today. Amen.